A lot of us are fortunate enough to work just one job. Sometimes it's the only job we'll have our whole lives. But for actors, it's different. They're constantly taking on different roles, sometimes at the same time. So these extremes that the actors have to go to, usually eight shows a week, can really have an effect on you. You might be wearing a corset, you might be sword fighting, you might be a mass murderer, you might be someone who's having their heart broken. And somehow they've got to stay themselves while pretending to be someone else. But I think the most important part is after that experience, what can you do to kind of cool down and step out and recognize that you were telling a story and that that story is staying at the theater or on the film set and that as you walk away from the theater or the set, you are stepping back into your own shoes and not carrying all of that with us. Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, how to leave work at work and take care of ourselves. Later in the show, an uphill battle for educators. We've had a teacher shortage pretty much the entire time I've been in education, first as a student and now as somebody who works in it. But first, Robin Berg is a theater professor at Radford University. Throughout her career, she's learned that each role for actors requires different self-care, and often actors are playing multiple roles simultaneously. She's teaching her students how to stay themselves while playing someone else. Robin, every day, actors go to work and pretend to be someone else. What does it really feel like for them to stay themselves, but also play someone completely different? Sometimes actors are tasked with playing a character very similar to themselves, and maybe it's not a big stretch. Other times they are tasked with playing someone completely outside of themselves, and a lot more research and tricks of the trade are necessary. But I think no matter who they're playing, no matter if the character is is close to them or someone much further away, there's a real need to ground themselves in who they are before they step into those shoes of that other person because the business is taxing and it can really have an effect on your body, your mind, your spirit. And I think what I'm most interested in is actors really finding some tools to keep them grounded so that when they do step out of the character. They can come back to themselves more easily and feel healthy and vibrant so that they're that much more able to step back into those shoes the next day. I can understand needing those sort of self-care tools and all of us needing to bolster ourselves and understand who we are, but I I don't fully understand why it's more taxing for actors and why they so need to make sure they can come back to their healthy, vibrant selves? Well, if you think about most plays or movies that you know, those characters are going through a pretty dramatic point in their life, right? Plays are rarely about someone just having an average day. (laughs) The audiences don't usually pay 100 bucks for that on Broadway. So these (laughs) extremes that the actors have to go to, usually eight shows a week, can really have an effect on you. You might be wearing a corset, you might be sword fighting, you might be a mass murderer, you might be someone who's having their heart broken. So I think for the actor to be able to do something that extreme regularly, they've got to find some anchors throughout the rest of their life that kind of help them stay healthy and vibrant so that they can, again, go to that extreme each night, uh, eight shows a week. I hadn't thought about the physicality of it, and you're exactly Mm. right. Mentally, if you're immersed in playing a very warped character, a character having very deeply difficult experiences, can that eat into you, eat into your psyche and heart? I think so, and I can only really answer that personally as an actor. I think that it really depends on the training you have and how you are approaching the craft. But I think that there are healthy ways to do it no matter what your uh, acting theory is applied to the role. Uh, I often tell my students that maybe they've never played 
that mass murderer or that they haven't been that mass murderer, hopefully, in, in real life, right? But yeah. maybe they've killed a fly. And that all we're going to do is take that impulse that you had to swat the fly and think about how you might expand that a little bit and how we might color you know, deeper into the psyche of this person. But I think the most important part is after that experience, what can you do to kind of cool down and step out and recognize that you were telling a story and that that story is staying at the theater or on the film set and that as you walk away from the theater or the set, you are stepping back into your own shoes and not carrying all of that with us. And when I have this conversation with my students, Quite frequently, actors like Heath Ledger come up, who was playing the Joker when, you know, or, or shortly before he left this world. And we're never going to know exactly the circumstances of his life, but students definitely ask me, did playing a character that intense get to him? And I say, well, <laughs> that's definitely possible. So let's talk about the tools that we have at our disposal to be able to do the job, but still return home to ourselves afterwards. And tell me about those tools. What different kinds of things do you do and do you advocate students do to have self-care when they're in acting roles? Yeah, I'm a big advocate in creating a toolbox that works for you. So not everybody's toolbox is going to look the same. I'm a yoga teacher. I love yoga. I very much um, have seen my students find a home on the mat and find some grounding and it helps them to really approach, approach their job in a more grounded way. But that's not everybody's piece of cake. So other people might like kickboxing or riding the elliptical machine. Whatever that movement is for you that makes you feel most grounded, I think is great. Put that in your toolbox. And maybe there's more than one. Uh, Maybe running is your thing or just going for a stroll. But I think movement is definitely a tool and and it could have a different flavor depending on what works for you. Uh, I'm definitely a big advocate of whole and real foods. Uh, We see, especially on college campuses, um, so much fast and processed food that I'm constantly encouraging my students to eat a variety of colors. That really does change how your body feels and moves and acts and breathes. Uh, So I'm definitely an advocate for that. I love meditation and encourage actors to find a way to have some stillness, whether it's a guided meditation or maybe just sitting out in nature for a little bit. Our lives are so busy and there are so many notifications and emails that the ability to just be still every once in a while. And again, as we talk about how dramatic or intense a role might be, I think we need that yin and yang. We need that ability to find some stillness, some quiet, knowing that later that night, you know, we're going to be doing something that might perhaps be the very opposite end of that spectrum. And and really, there's there's a host of other tools, nature or water, uh, so many tools. And I think it's really just about trying a lot of different things, finding what, what works for you, and then more specifically, finding what works for you when you're playing this role. I know when I'm doing a Shakespeare play, I might have very different needs than when I'm shooting an industrial for a grocery store. Was there ever a role that you were involved in where you really especially needed something like this? Yeah, there was a role I did in graduate school at the University of Florida. It was a restoration comedy, and that is a period piece from around 1660. And I had to wear a corset, wear a 30-pound dress, heels. The play was three hours long. I had a lot of dialogue in a British accent with lots of big fancy words. The stage was raked, so on an angle. So you're basically acting, you know, sideways the whole time. Um, And you're talking about a period piece from 400 years ago that maybe isn't going to immediately resonate with a college audience. And I will say that that show led me to my chiropractor. (laughs) (laughs) which can be another tool in the toolbox, right? Um, Because I just found that some of the particular demands placed upon me for that show led me to, to needing that tool. And I've been going regularly ever since. And it has helped me feel, you know, more whole and complete in my body. So that's one example. I could probably think of five more, um, but that's probably the first one that comes to mind. Did it also make you want to strip and go to a beach? (laughs) Well, I always want to do that. <laughs> well, strip, 
and wear loose clothes at right. a beach. <laughs> Not a corset in a 30-pound dress. Um, yes, right. yes, indeed, indeed. Again, it's about finding the yin to the yang, right? <laughs> right, right. I totally get it. You know, the theater was one of the first places that shut down when COVID mm. hit in the spring mm-hmm. of 2020. How did that emotionally, mentally affect your students? And do you find they're still feeling it? Great questions. Of course, it mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, all all the ways affected my students, affected, I would venture to say, most actors, whether they're in a training situation or working professionally. What did you see? Well, first and foremost, there, there was no theater, right? And so because theater demands an audience, by definition, it is an exchange between performer and audience. And because we couldn't gather as an audience, there straight up was no theater. And so first and foremost, I saw a bit of an identity crisis amongst a lot of actors who could no longer do the thing that made them who they are. And they floundered not knowing what their purpose was. And then, of course, there was, well, what are these alternative ways that we can still produce and be creative? And I myself was involved in more than one Zoom play. And that's just a different Mm -hmm. demand. That's not necessarily better or worse or, or, or anything, but just a different demand. And so then there's a relearning that has to happen about how do I do this thing I know how to do, I've been trained to do, but in a completely different format. And then the next step was, okay, we can gather the audiences, but they're going to be wearing masks. You might still be wearing a mask on the stage. And so that too, I would say specifically for my students that were training right in the midst of that, I do think they're going to struggle a little bit more with their vocal approach professionally now because they were wearing that mask for two something years. And so I've encouraged a lot of my students that have graduated very recently or that maybe are about to graduate to continue some of their vocal training beyond their degree because I do think that they lost a little bit of that. How much did they struggle then? And are they better now? Oh, I think we are very slowly climbing back up. I see it happening over the last year or two, but I think the ascent is is quite slow. I don't think it's going to be a snap of the fingers and we're back to where we were before. You know, it's scary for college students when they graduate to be dumped out into the real world. What advice do you give your students? Well, I often tell them to think about the big picture. It's very tempting to immediately say, I'm picking up and moving to Los Angeles or I'm picking up and moving to New York. And those are fabulous cities. I lived in New York for many years myself. But I also want you to think a little bit about the entirety of of the pie. What makes up my whole life? And am I going to be fulfilled in all of the ways in that place? So I think sometimes it's really about at the end of your collegiate experience, figuring out the next steps that will make you feel whole as a whole person, because even if the professional part of you is feeling fulfilled, but the rest of you is not, you're not going to make it in New York anyway. It's going to be a year or two and you're just going to turn around and come home. So you've got to kind of think long term and you've got to think about what's going to make me feel the most whole for many, many years to come. And is this the right definition of success for me? And you know, that crazy dichotomy between graduating with sort of a professional degree and a humanities degree, you choose humanities because you love them and that's the life you want to live. But you watch all the people that train to be engineers and doctors and teachers go off and get those jobs right away. I tell my students this a lot, that that their friends in accounting or business are probably going to graduate, have two or three interviews, get a job, and maybe stay in that job for the next 40 years. They're going to go to work every day, (laughs) nine to five, Monday through Friday. They're going to have a routine. And I'm not saying that's bad, good. I mean, that's just their reality and their path. And a paycheck. And And a a paycheck. paycheck. (laughs) Absolutely. Right. (laughs) Um, But the reality of the actor is so different from that you are maybe going to have no work for months and then you're going to have three shows all at the same time. You might be doing children's theater in the morning. You might be shooting a commercial in the afternoon and then going to rehearsal for your nitty gritty drama in the evening. And that's a lot to balance at one time. But then again, maybe there's a drought afterwards. And so another reason I'm so interested in this toolbox is that 
if you don't have some anchors to pull out of that toolbox, there is just too much chaos in your life, right? Um, because again, feast or famine. So finding, you know, some some routines, finding I'm going to do yoga every Tuesday and Thursday, or I'm going to commit to meditation for 10 minutes every morning anchors you in a way that your professional career probably won't because every day is different, because every week is different, every month is different, every year is different. So unlike your friend's in those other majors, um, your life just looks different. And so I think the responsibility is yours to figure out how to sustain yourself in a career like that, that is so vastly different from someone who's going to have one paycheck, one job, um, and a very consistent approach to scheduling. Robin Berg is a professor of theater at Radford University. She co-hosts the podcast, Staying With Me While Being You, a self-help podcast for actors. Teachers are burned out. That was true before COVID, and it's especially true now. My next guest, Peter Thaxter, is a professor of psychology at the University of Mary Washington. He's also an elementary school psychologist, and he says as he and his peers are navigating burnout, he sees the significance and limitations of learning to be selfish. Peter, why do we think of selfishness as bad and drill this into our children when they're very young? Yeah, that that is a great question. Um, you know, there are, I think, a number of different ways of, of thinking about selfishness and kind of where those messages come from. Um, behaviors are learned by their response from the environment. And those judgments um, and th that communication around the behavior is also very culturally or societally or even family bound, especially, you know, when we are younger, it is very much, you know, we, we do as our, we are told. Um, and then kind okay. of as we grow older, we, we get better at doing as we see done. Um, <laughs> so I think early on those messages strike home a little bit harder. But then, yeah, once we get into those older years or, uh, you know, the teenage years especially, um, you know, that's kind of fraught with that time of, yeah, well, that's what you said, but that's not what you're doing. <laughs> so we're more likely to get that pushback as kids get older and get a little wiser. Do you think we're born to be selfish? Do you think it's adaptive? Is this a Darwinian thing that we are given at birth that has to be tamed later in society? So I think there are a couple different ways of thinking about um, a kind of that, that Darwinian or um, evolutionary kind of perspective on selfishness. Yes, there is you know, definitely one side of it that would suggest um, that, you know, by being selfish, by grabbing that last bit of food, by, you know, getting that the, the good shelter, whatever it might be, um, you know, is more likely to make that certain member, that individual member of the species survive. But other parts within our kind of evolutionary standpoint actually might suggest slightly the opposite. You know, humans, most of the time, we can't do everything ourselves. And so we form these societies where we do rely on each other. You know, we think often of little children and the idea of being selfish or unselfish is about, you know, taking that last piece of food or sharing toys, that kind of thing. But there's a different kind of being selfish that also happens as we mature, where on one hand, we want to protect ourselves and, and nurture ourselves, and on the other hand, be good to those around us. It's a little different from toy sharing and food sharing, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, there's there's a big gap. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes what we communicate to kids about, you know, not taking that, it's selfish, versus to what we as adults, um, or even, you know, honestly, older children and teenagers, um, you know, have to do to engage in some forms of self-preservation. And it's it's not always you know, a one-to-one -one ratio. And I think sometimes that message on, you know, self-ish versus self-care or self-preservation often can get misconstrued or conflated based on, you know, the messaging in our society. I'm going to use my own kids as an example. Um, I have a 14-year-old daughter who is, um, you know, like her parents, she is a people pleaser. 
Um, she is <laughs> going to bend over backwards to make things better for you, even though it might in the end be really hard for her. And she's not going to say anything because she, you know, kind of, that's kind of what we, we want to be well-liked. We want people to like us. We want people to accept us. And sometimes we're willing to kind of push ourselves into uncomfortable situations to make that happen. You're an elementary school psychologist by day in a school system that, like so many others, is dealing with teacher shortages. How does that set the stage for your view of selfishness as sometimes positive in people? Yes, you've hit the nail on the head, you know, over um, the last couple of years, um, especially since the pandemic, pretty much every year has been a record-breaking year in terms of teacher turnover and teacher attrition. Um, And this is nationwide. You know, these rates were anywhere between 4 and 8% prior to the pandemic and have in some cases gone up 4% to, you know, almost doubling. And we see this more in our less supported, underfunded school systems and specific schools within a district. You know, we see it at higher rates uh, in urban and rural environments. And then we also see the higher rates of attrition and turnover in our younger teachers. So folks who are just getting into the field and, and it's too much. Because, I mean, right now we are asking our, our teachers to do more. You know, we've got more duties, whether it's administrative duties or state testing. But the, that level of support has not necessarily risen to meet that extra demand. And so, you know, we're we're kind of tipping the scale in one way and not really helping compensate in another. So by by being selfless, individual teachers or workers can sometimes take on such a load that they themselves burn out or it's damaging to them and others and doesn't really get the message of the kind of staffing that's truly needed to the people who need to hear it, which is the funders and the lawmakers and taxpayers. Exactly. I mean, we've had a teacher shortage pretty much the entire time I've been in education first as a student and now as somebody who works in it. And that's because, you know, a lot of these things that, you know, we're talking about, we really need big systemic level changes and and really kind of cultural shifts in how we think about it and how we support that. But those shifts happen slowly and happen very gradually and sometimes don't happen at all. And so sometimes, yeah, you're right. You know, teachers are, I think by nature, we want teachers want to be selfless, that they're here to help. They're here to educate. They're here to do things for other people. But there's only so many times you can say, yes, I'll take on that extra responsibility to the point where, yeah, there is burnout. Uh, you know, I always think of, you know, when you get on an airplane, you know, what do the flight attendants tell you to do if there's an emergency? You know, if those oxygen masks come down from the cabin, you put the mask on yourself before you helping the person next to you. Because mm. if you're trying to help the person next to you, but you yourself are running out of oxygen, you're not going to be able to support anybody else. In the decade you've been a school psychologist or teaching Have you experienced this level of burnout and running on empty personally as much before as you do in recent years? I know I have experienced it more in the last four years than I did any time before then. Um, um, I kind of moved into working as a school psychologist from private practice and clinical work and working also in hospital settings where the hours were all harder and the cases were more difficult. And then when I started in school psychology, you know, it, it was actually, oh, this is, this is, I'll be honest, a little cushy. You know, I, I kind of, I, I work, you know, eight to three and, and I, uh, you know, sit in meetings and I, I occasionally have to test kids to the point where now, <laughs> post-pandemic levels, my caseload, my, my workload is higher than ever before. Really? And I, yes. And I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with changes since the pandemic and kind of our focus in terms of returning to normalcy as much as possible and again pushing and trying to get back on top of things so there's a lot of pushing right now to to get us back where we were but again that's a lot of pushing where i truly believe what would be more beneficial and helpful to society is like all right let's look at these norms and kind of let's adjust what the norm with the normal is 
given the last couple of years. <laughs> but, you know, that would take uh, big systemic level changes and that's hard to do. And people don't want to do that because that's almost admitting that, yeah, we got a problem um, and here's why. Instead, it's, all right, this happened, but let's, you know, all, all steam ahead. Um, you know, all engines go. So two things. One is we need to fix it at a very broad level. The other thing is individually, individuals to some extent need to be more selfish and say no more often to cope with the mental and physical strains of it all. Yes, because yeah, with in in the absence of those you know big systemic changes happening, that is really what I, I you know I think most people would agree you know needs to happen. Um, taking those little steps, though those steps, those individual steps, the things that I can do. So learning to self-advocate, learning to say no, taking time to replenish um, myself, you know, asking for help, asking for um, support when I need it. Those little changes might help in terms of decreasing some stress, decreasing anxiety, and hopefully in the long run, decreasing levels of burnout and attrition. Um, because again, kind of again, with the, the oxygen mask thing, I'm, I'm going to be able to help you better if I'm taken care of. What have you done for yourself that maybe the rest of us could emulate in trying to take a beat and decrease some of the pressures you can't fix otherwise? Yeah, I do my best to, you know, not pick up a lot of extra responsibilities unless, you know, there's not a way around it. Or if it actually works for my schedule, if I have a light week and I can pick that up, sure. But if I'm already, you know, feeling underwater, this is not the time for me to say, yeah, I can help you out with that. But it's hard too. I also uh, do my best to not take my work home. Um, as much as I can. So when I get home, that that is my my home time. Um, that does get difficult that I, I work three jobs. Um, so there's always something to be working on and, you know, really trying to understand what's going to help or hurt you and kind of having to do a cost-benefit analysis before agreeing on that. Um, and that's kind of the, the constant inter interplay in my head. I don't say no to everything. But I don't say yes to everything either. But it, it, I will be honest, it is hard for me. It is hard for me to say no sometimes. It is hard for me to ask for help. Peter Thaxter is a professor of psychology at the University of Mary Washington. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. What happens in childhood affects us for the rest of our lives. Adrian Bravo and his colleagues have found that in seven countries, many people self-medicate traumatic childhood memories with drinking or smoking. But what's different in each place is the culture around drinking and drug usage, and that shapes our ability to find better coping mechanisms. Adrian Bravo is a professor of psychological sciences at William & Mary. Adrian, how do childhood traumatic experiences lead to drinking later in life? I think one of the big issues that we see is that what happens in childhood really changes our worldview of how we deal with struggles, stressors as we've developed through life. How, how many people experience childhood trauma? And what kinds of trauma are we usually thinking about? Extreme trauma, like severe abuse and emotional neglect, or also smaller trauma? Working with my colleague, Deborah Kaminer in South Africa, who does a lot of childhood trauma research, one of the first questions we had is, well, how prevalent is this? In the literature and looking at a lot of childhood trauma literature, they always say if you've experienced four or more, that puts you at high risk for developing problematic issues later in life. And so in this study, the World Health Organization 
just came out with a measure that they wanted to standardize what the experiences were like. And what we did is we collected that data across seven countries. And unfortunately for us, we saw a high prevalence among all these college students in every country. And so in that measure that we use, it assesses things that are quite severe, like sexual trauma, physical neglect, physical abuse, and so forth. But even other things that we kind of forget about could be traumatic experiences, like having a house member who's incarcerated, having a house member who unfortunately has a mental health disorder, um, and even things like bullying that occur in childhood. Um, and so the assessment that we use from the World Health Organization breaks it down across 12 different domains. And what we unfortunately found is that, as the literature says, four or more is risky. In fact, in every country, the average was four or more. I know you started this research in grad school, but what made you think of it? What was interesting you or what experiences had people around you had that made you look into this? Yeah, so I was originally born in Cuba. And when we immigrated to the United States, I quickly realized that there was a lot of cultural differences, not only in policy, but also of how people talked about drugs and consuming drugs and even mental health. And I honestly, the really kickstarted this was my first experiences going to college and meeting and going to my first fraternity party. And people were like, let's really get blackout drunk. And I'm like, yeah. can't you enjoy the drug without doing that? And so it was a very <laughs> different cultural kind of viewpoint. And then when in grad school, um, I really was interested in harm reduction strategies. So if you decided to use the drug, can we teach you how to do it safely? And at that time, I was really interested in how other cultures view mental health and substance use broadly. Um, but it's always funny to me when everyone's like, hey, why do you care about mental health and substance use in these other countries? And I tell them, like, I'm sorry, I didn't realize it's only an American problem. <laughs> and so they're kind of right. assume that most things are American can be transferred to other cultures. But beyond just policy issues or differences in legal drinking age and things like that. I mean, look at Canada, it's 19 in some provinces. It was more of how we communicate about these things and even mental health um, and looking at how global of an impact this is, how cross-cutting is it, how universal. And for me, always being an immigrant, political refugee, I was always interested in the meshing of these different ideas because if we are going to solve some of these issues, we can't just do it alone and assume that our country is the only one that's going to fix it or we're the only ones that have the capacity to um, do so. And, and more importantly, if we can find solutions, how can we adapt it to each context in an appropriate way? Growing up in Cuba, what did you see that you used to think might be just unique to Cuba until you came to America and went, oh, actually, this is universal? Yeah, so... One of the more interesting parts is, so growing up, um, and I immigrated when I was young, but my parents always talked about how there, particularly with drinking, it was just so normalized that it was just a constant in-your-face kind of approach, but it wasn't emphasized to be going out and doing as hard as you can. It was more just moderate drinking and so forth. Um, and then when we came to the States, it was very different laws and, um, and aspects. And for my parents more so, I remember my dad telling a story the first time we immigrated. Um, he went to a grocery store and bought like a, a beer or something and started walking outside and drinking it. People were looking at him funny and, and someone had to stop him and say, you can't do that here. <laughs> he was like, wait, what? And so growing up. Cat. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so learning already from the get-go that, okay, maybe we perceive these customs of surrounding it. How taboo is it to talk about? I mean, when I started going to school and learning English and meeting friends of families of others, it seemed a lot less talked about. It was more of, yeah, don't do that. I don't want to hear you doing that. And for us, we we're always more open about converse, conversing about these things. And if you do engage in drinking, how do you do it safely and so forth? And really, that was a big thing. And particularly the biggest shock for me um, was particularly the issues of driving under the influence. Um, immigrating to the United States, I always tell people what's the number one thing you need to survive in America. And I said a car. <laughs> Unfortunately, public transportation isn't the same. <laughs> um, and in fact, in the cross-cultural research we've done, we were asking questions about driving under the influence. And I recall having a conversation with my colleagues in Spain, and we were trying to translate measures into Spanish. And they're like, what's this term designated driver? And I'm like, oh, y'all have public transportation. You don't need a special term for it. So for us in America, we are so focused on that. And we have better options now with Ubers and things, Lyft and all those kind of things. But the idea of a designated driver is important here because we are so reliant on vehicles to get around and everything's more widespread. There, everything's more concentrated walking cities. Um, I was able to visit my colleague in Sevilla, Spain this November, and it was just everyone was about, but there was no need for vehicles and driving under the influence wasn't a big concern because everyone just walked everywhere. And that changes how you view these things and how people consume alcohol or any other drugs um, in these various countries based on more than just the cultural aspect, but location and what is the capacity for harm that could occur. You know, it's so nice to hear you say that because when you grow up here, 
you forget that it could be any other way. Mm -hmm. And we know we lament the sort of gas guzzling, yes. you know, now electric battery using mm -hmm. <laughs> vehicles, but all the problems vehicles cause, and it doesn't really have to be that way. There are other societies where it's not a problem. Yeah, for sure. And then the idea of kind of a shared community sense about it as well, um, in the sense, and I've seen some cities, particularly the bigger cities during like New Year's and things, allow for free taxis and things like that. Um, I think thinking this as not as just an individual issue, um, sometimes really looking at it more collectively. And then these other cultures, they really do take that approach. Um, and I think one of the biggest reasons for that is here, we're fortunate that we have enough resources that, I, in my opinion, we spend a lot of money on intervention. Um, but these other countries, they can't afford that. They have to work a lot on prevention. So what's the messaging? How do we reduce these behaviors and not make it so normalized, especially that it could create harm, something like driving the in, under the influence? I'm curious, given that you have specifically studied the effects of using alcohol as a coping strategy on children who grow up with trauma in various countries, when you came to America and were so shocked to see the binge drinking, happy culture of the fraternities, that is unrelated to childhood trauma, right? That's more of a socialized adult thing. Yes, no, for sure. Um, and, and I think that's an important distinction to make. I will acknowledge I was a fraternity president, so I lived that lifestyle. Um, it was that sense yeah. of like, hey, we're invincible. It is all for fun. But sometimes it masked the issues of even among young adults. Hey, I bombed an exam. I want to drink to forget. The problem is when it becomes the primary way to do so because it actually doesn't solve the problem. Your students must find this especially interesting because there has to be a wide spectrum of people with varying childhood experiences, including ones that included traumas. No, it really is. And I think for when I teach about these things to my students, and here at William Mary, they're very great, they're very high achieving, high academic. I really, my goal is to show them how the real world looks in the sense that we have these ideas, these resources, but how are we putting them into use? How are we actually helping with these issues? And the hardest part is, where should we put our efforts into? Yes, most of the time we'd say we need to help that individual, we need to teach them to have better coping repertoire, not to use drugs, build up their resilience, their just traumatic experiences. And I'm also at the camp, I'm like, well, we could also try to reduce the trauma in some capacity, especially if things are more systematic issues that could be occurring. You know, for people who have had childhood traumas, are they able to simply grow out of it? I mean, some people resort to substance abuse mm -hmm. and it stays with them, I guess, for the rest of their lives. Others may never do that, right? Yeah. And others may find that they grow away from their childhood experience and the trauma is no longer lasting. No, you raise a really good point. And that's just because you experience this doesn't mean that you're automatically going to have these issues later in life. And the real question is, how are people able to grow over the time and how those things occur? And there's a lot, great line of research of looking at individuals who are able to actually adaptively handle those issues. And what is it about them? What was it? Was it the resources? Were they able to somehow find comfort and social support from friends or other individuals? Was there more adaptive coping responses? I mean, some may even turn to, you know, their faith, religion, whatever it may be. Um, so mostly I will say that even in our studies, yes, there was correlations and associations between these experiences and poor mental health and young adulthood, but it wasn't absolute. It wasn't something that was automatic. What do you hope could be done with this research? What, what ultimately do you think it might contribute to? Yeah, so for us, it's really informing policy and prevention and intervention efforts within each of these places. Um, I think one of the things that we've really wanted to hit home on is that if we're able to find things that are specific to each cultural group or nation, what is it within their resources or capacities can they focus in on? Similarly, what are things that are universal? What are aspects that we can hone in on within all interventions to kind of help anyone struggling with these kind of issues? And so just had a meeting this last week with my colleagues in Argentina about creating a mindfulness-based intervention to help reduce drinking to cope and how that affects their use of alcohol. Um, and so I think now that we've gathered more foundation and that these models that typically come out of the U.S. or Canada or England, they are applicable in these countries that are unfortunately under-resourced. So what is an alternative application that we can use within each of these places? And then hopefully lead to long-term change within some of these areas, um, whether it's the normalization of how we speak about these things. Um, as you know, each generation is very different. They pick up on different things, have different types of stressors and so forth. And so one of the things that long-term that I would love to see is more 
policy changes and public health initiatives. While, yes, I would love to work with every individual, the long-term change and the long-term impact really comes from those policy decisions that are being made and how we can improve people's lives in general, not only in reducing the prevalence or experiences of these events, but more so if they unfortunately occur, what can we do for these individuals? We can create the best intervention, but if we can't implement it, if there's no economic resources, if there is no foundation there to actually implement, then it's not going to be helpful. And so long term, I really view our work and works of others as we need to bridge gaps between this if we're trying to really solve these world issues and not feel like we are going to solve it all on our own and using the skills and expertise from different sectors, public health, mental health, substance use, epidemiological work, um, policymakers. I think that's one thing that we really lack um, is this idea that we can do all the great science, but if it doesn't get relayed into a way that it helps the community um, in a broad sense, then we might be missing something as well. So true. Adrian Bravo, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you, Sarah. Adrian Bravo is a professor of psychological sciences at William & Mary. Trauma changes our brains, but apparently men and women's brains respond differently to trauma. Tim Jerome of Virginia Tech and his team have found that a protein we all have in our brains responds very uniquely to trauma in women's brains. Tim Jerome is a professor of neurobiology at Virginia Tech. He's received a 2024 Outstanding Faculty Award from the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Tim, you and the students you work with in your lab are trying to understand how trauma changes the brain. Does trauma actually change our brains? I would have thought, we store trauma somewhere and that we have traumatic experiences that we tap into in our lives. But do, does trauma change our brains? That's a, that's a great question. And it, it's really both parts of what you just said. So trauma is both a memory that's stored in the brain, but at the same time, it can help rewire circuits in the brain and lead to different behavioral responses. It might make you more likely to become anxious in specific circumstances that you wouldn't have before. So it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of a, a memory that's being stored and changes to the, the wiring of the brain and how you might respond to new events that before you may not have been anxious about or had any sort of fear towards. You and your colleagues have found that a protein in women's brains makes them three times more likely to experience trauma. Right. So uh, women are actually two to three times more likely than men to experience post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Um, but we actually, uh, they actually don't report experiencing more traumatic events. And so my lab has been very interested in understanding why women are more likely than men to develop PTSD. And we've done this by trying to understand how these fear memories that underlie PTSD are formed. And we actually came across this one particular protein um, that's actually found in cells all throughout our body, but it's very abundant in the brain. And, we, and it comes in many forms. And we found that one specific form of it um, was increased uh, in the female brain following trauma, uh, but we didn't see changes in the male brain. And it, this could help explain potentially why women are more likely than men to have uh, PTSD following trauma. Were you surprised to find there were these sex-based differences? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, I was <laughs> surprised by, you know, I've, I've been interested in, in uh, PTSD for years, but I, I didn't realize that women were more likely than men to have PTSD. And, and when you start going through the, the research that's out there and the incidence rates for PTSD, it's, it's actually pretty amazing at, at the, the sex difference that exists in it. When we talk about women more likely to experience trauma and to contract, let's say, PTSD, is that because you think they have more experiences that would lead to it typically being smaller and more vulnerable and perhaps so sort of bullied or because they're wired more for it? Yeah, that's it's a great question. And it's something we're still trying to understand, but it's probably a little bit on both sides. So one, the, the traumas that women experience tend to be a bit different than those of men. For example, sexual assault is much more common among women. And that's a different type of trauma um, as opposed to experience in war times, for example. 
And so it, it could potentially be partially related to the types of traumas that women are experiencing versus men or more likely to experience than men are. And then it can also be partially related to differences in biology. Um, and, you know, in the brain in particular, while we have all the same proteins between uh, men and women, and the brain has all the same brain regions and same general functions, there's notable differences. And so it's a little bit of both. It's both the, the trauma that's being experienced, uh, as well as the underlying biology um, differences between uh, males and females. Are you finding the difference is based on women across races or just a basic men versus women? Well, the higher incidence of PTSD is um, across uh, races and ethnicity. It does vary based on age. It's much more common in certain age groups than others, but it generally holds true regardless of race or uh, ethnicity. Which age groups? Uh, so the age groups will tend to be those uh, young adult uh, age groups. So that would be teen years to early 20s. And then uh, that's when you have some of the highest rates of uh, women being uh, more likely to be diagnosed with PTSD than men. It'll start coming down towards middle adulthood. So maybe around 40s or 50s. And then we actually tend to see a bit of a spike where it comes back up um, about after 60. Why do you think there is a sex-based difference? You know, one thought could be that it's potentially adaptive. And while obviously having PTSD yeah. is maladaptive because it interferes with your life, uh, the reality is there could be an adaptive aspect of it because it makes you uh, try to avoid certain situations that may be potentially dangerous. And uh, since women carry uh, children, it's possible that it's maybe adaptive in that way, but it goes too far and it becomes maladaptive because of the fact that it might make you avoid too many situations. And it's not to say that that is the case. It's only speculation, but perhaps there's, there was initially some sort of adaptive aspect to this, but it goes too far when you have PTSD. What do you think this is leading you to? What does knowing all this allow you to do? Well, so we're still examining this protein because, again, it has many forms and we're starting to reveal new roles for it and how it's leading to the formation of these memories for these traumatic events and how when it is performing different functions between males and females. You know, ultimately, our hope is that by understanding this protein and its potentially unique control of forming these types of fear memories that underlie PTSD, that we might be able to develop better therapeutic interventions. So right now uh, with PTSD, uh, the success rate for therapeutic interventions are about 50%. And those interventions consist of cognitive behavioral therapy or um, uh, medications such as antidepressants. But that means about 50% of people do not get uh, full remission of PTSD and some don't get very much remission at all. And so while our therapies are good, they're not perfect. And ultimately, we need other targets to develop uh, uh, drugs against or medications against to help with these cognitive behavioral therapies. And it, it may be a case where it's not one size fits all also. If women are more likely to experience PTSD, then it's possible if this is being driven by biological differences, we might need different medications to treat them. What you're saying is a therapeutic intervention might be to target this particular protein? Correct. If we know that this protein, for example, is uh, regulating uh, the development of these fear memories that underlie PTSD in females more than men, what we can do is we could potentially develop some sort of medication to target that protein. And in doing so, we might be able to develop a treatment that's more effective in women uh, and which could help with that sex bias that seems to exist in PTSD. What's the downside? If you target this protein, what could you prevent it from doing that's good? Oh, that's always the difficulty with uh, with anything biological. So any medication you make is going to target something that might help one disorder and unfortunately have some negative side effects in another. You know, this, uh, this ubiquitin protein is what it's called that we're looking at. Um, it has many, many functions. Um, and we actually don't know everything that it does yet, which is another thing that my lab is also trying to understand. And there's other labs working on this as well. But we also do know that this protein uh, seems to have altered function um, in age-related memory loss. It has altered function in Alzheimer's disease, uh, Parkinson's disease. So there could be broad aspects of this that it might help treat other forms of memory issues as well. 
Now, it's not to say that it might not have um, other secondary problems, but those are all things that will help determine as we study this protein more and when a treatment can be developed, you know, the idea is to minimize any of those potential off-target uh, off issues or those secondary effects. You know, I've read that you love being a scientist. You love your work in the lab and mentoring students. Is it a little bit like playing Legos, building something with Legos? Oh, that's a, that's a good analogy. I ha I've actually not heard that one before, but uh, yes, I would say that it is kind of like doing that. You know, with being in the lab, it, you, you get to develop a question. You then get to develop a way to answer that question, actually try answering it and see if you were right or not. And so it, it's, a, it's a really good um, exercise, both in, you know, uh, critical thinking, and then you get to do the work and see if you were right in the end. And um, I, I think... For me, I guess it could be kind of like, you know, building a Lego and you're kind of taking a long time to build the project because some of those are so, so complex. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, when and when you get the result in the end and you you find that unexpected outcome or things work maybe in the way you predicted, it's a, it's a great feeling. It's a great accomplishment. And so, yeah, I guess in that way, it could be like finishing that, that big Lego puzzle. Well, Tim Jerome, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Well, thank you for having me. Tim Jerome is a professor of neurobiology at Virginia Tech. He received a 2024 Outstanding Faculty Award from the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. You're invited to take part in the 30th Annual Virginia Festival of the Book, with events for readers of all ages and interests in and around Charlottesville. This will be March 20th through 24th, with preview events across Virginia March 8th through 16th. Go to vabook.org. With Good Reason's production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Custo is our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.